and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that critically analyzes some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are continuing with our mini-season on the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and today we're going to be talking about chapters 24, 25, and 26, and Chris is going to give us a brief recap of what happened in those chapters. This section starts off with a conflict that we see with Billy Tope, which ends when the lights go out and a brawl breaks out. The next day, Snow and Sejanus go to the Covey, and we finally see Lucy Gray and Coriolanus reunite. They catch up, they kiss a bunch, <laughs> and when they return to the Covey, they find Sejanus helping Billy Tope with creating a map of the Peacekeeper base. Snow takes the test to become an officer. He helps Dr. K, one of Dr. Gall's assistants, to capture Jabber Jays and Mocking Jays. He also finds Sejanus' secret stash of money. He has a small argument with Lucy Gray over his thoughts on the Capitol and the Hunger Games. But then we see an additional performance, including the Ballad of Lucy Gray, which she's named for. And this section ends with Snow finding Sejanus' seat empty. Drama is coming to District 12 very quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the quote that we're going to talk about is a kind of heated exchange that happens between Coriolanus and Sejanus. So Chris is going to read Coriolanus's lines and I'm going to read Sejanus's lines. <laughs> so now you're a rebel informant. I thought you were letting the whole rebel thing go. <laughs> what is this accent he has? It's his pretentious douchey accent, obviously. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Start again. So now you're a rebel informant. I thought you were letting the whole rebel thing go. I can't, alright? It's a part of who I am. And you're the one who said that I could help the people in the districts if I agreed to leave the arena. I believe I said you could fight for the tributes, meaning you might be able to procure more humane conditions for them. Humane conditions? They're being forced to murder each other, and the tributes are from the districts too, so I don't really see a distinction. So I'm just going to say I'm right in this circumstance, and Chris is wrong. I mean, that is typically correct, but certainly correct when I'm playing a oppressive fascist maniac. (laughs) I don't don't know that he's a maniac yet. That's true. (laughs) This quote, I think, shows... Just the great distinction between the two of them, where Snow continually tries to fit into the mainstream of what is accepted in the capital, and Sejanus just refuses to do so, and both of them can't understand the other's perspective, and as you mentioned, one of them is the right perspective, and it's not Snow's. (laughs) It's interesting, because... I don't, I don't even know if it's entirely that Snow wants to fit in with the Capitol's perspective. I think for the most part, he believes the Capitol's perspective. Mm. And part of it's because he grew up with it. And he grew up in the family he did. Seems like his father's the one who told Dr. Gall, Dean Highbottom's kind of drunken joke idea of the Hunger Games. So the Snow family has very specific perspectives even within the capital which snow continues and and there are moments where he questions it but it never wins out because again lucy gray's the exception you know if, if other district kids have to die they have to die but lucy gray is special and she's not even really district so 
these things shouldn't apply to her. He has opportunities to change and he doesn't. But yeah, for Sejanus, he can't change because he's right and he knows it. Like he has that deep moral center that he just can't go against. And I love it. And I understand it. (laughs) Because I wouldn't be as outspoken as he is probably in that circumstance. I would do it in a more Slytherin way instead of like running and be Gryffindor about it. But but yeah, like both you and I would both feel this, you know, righteous anger over it for sure. Yeah. And it just makes me think about I don't know, when people are advocating, like in our own world, like when people are advocating for incremental change or change in a vacuum instead of advocating to dismantle an oppressive system altogether. Because he's saying, yeah, like you could fight so that the tributes have more humane conditions in the Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. It's not that he is completely devoid of any empathy or any sense of wrongness, but it's still within the structure that has the games. Whereas Sejanus is like, there should be no games. You know, it's like, it's not about dismantling that. It's about like, let's make things slightly better for individual people when a problem arises rather than, no, everything needs to be changed so violence isn't done or protected in the system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we even see that later with Snow thinking when he's talking to Lucy Gray, how he does agree with most of what the capital does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we should probably get into our first impressions. So what were you thinking about? I think I realized through this chapter how much Snow is romanticizing his existence at this moment. <laughs> yeah. How he's really not seeing things logically or realistically. He mentions at one point that he and Lucy Gray are both exceptional people who have had... <laughs> Some of the worst things in the world happen to them. (laughs) And it's just such a false equivalency in so many ways. Yes. And just so arrogant and just, yeah, such a romantic view of both of them. But I think it also comes into the way that he interacts with Lucy Gray. He's kind of in this puppy love state where he's not really taking time to think about things outside of his personal current joy or desire for for affection from her. I think a good example of this is when he sneaks up on her in the meadow and triggers PTSD symptoms for her, right? She's still afraid after spending days in the arena. And he has no no idea about thinking about that until afterwards, until he sees her jump. Yeah, I, I was thinking a lot about those false equivalencies as well that he just keeps doing because when Lucy Gray was challenging him about not really being able to speak out in the Capitol, how they control people's voices, and she said that, you know, her dad did speak out and ended up with what it said were more bullet holes than she could count on her fingers. And then Cordlanus just retorts, and my father was killed by a rebel sniper. It's just those two things aren't equivalent. Like, yes, you know, mm. the the pain of having a parent killed, they could potentially relate to each other on that. But why and how they died is not the same at all. Lucy Gray's dad was executed brutally just because he spoke out, while Corlanus's dad was a military leader who was singled out to be killed during a war because he was a military leader. And those are two completely different things. 
And even when he was working with Dr. K from the Capitol and she recognized him and spoke to him and he was just like really embarrassed because, you know, of the whole debacle of him having to join the peacekeepers. And, you know, it said that he was trapped like a bird, trapped like the tributes in the zoo. Fling into the trees was not an option. And it's like he's equating him feeling embarrassment with the tributes mm. about to either kill or be killed and i don't he thinks he can relate to other people's tragedies or i don't i don't know what it is but like he yeah he just keeps doing these false equivalencies and it ugh drives me a little bit up the wall absolutely the other place i saw it was in his changing the subject when lucy gray talks about what she might have to do in dire circumstances right right and this is the second time he's done this yeah and he he didn't want to think about it and so he changed the subject to you know milking the goat or whatever and it's just not seeing her as her own person no he doesn't want her to be her he wants her to be the type of girl he wants her to be his yeah of course definitely his because she also didn't have a life before he came on the scene so Mm mm-hmm So, so yeah, I just, I see so much of this falsely romantic and ignorant way of looking at the world. Another, another example was he thinks the hanging tree is about him. (laughs) I mean, isn't everything about him? (laughs) Right? It, It really is. But then he also refuses to see that other people might have knowledge that he doesn't. When they are talking about how they used to travel up north outside of the districts. (laughs) Right. And he's like, I feel embarrassed for them because nothing exists out there. Maybe people living in caves, but that's all. Well, and and he even said in that moment, he was like, that's like barely even human. Like if they're living in caves and it's like, that's what you think. But all of these people are living in a completely dehumanized state under the capital's Mm. control. And he just doesn't see that at all. He doesn't have, I don't believe, at all a good or real concept of what being human is. For him, being human is having that decency like we were talking about in the last episode it's being like the snow family it's being like the capital that's what being human is and because people in the districts aren't they don't deserve to be treated as human yeah i love i love how you said that too dehumanized mm-hmm. because they're the action of them being treated as less than human is the imperative thing it's not their existence has an objective value to it. It's that it's actively being devalued by the capital, by those in power. And he refuses to see those systems and the way that that is incorporated into people's lives. So yes, I think that he is is just so arrogantly and ignorant at times, particularly here where I just now want to know so much more about those northern areas outside the capital's purview. Right. <laughs> like Maybe my some of Canada brain. made it. <laughs> exactly. I want to know more and he so quickly dismissed it and it just makes me so angry. <laughs> yes. That's true. That's all very true. One, <laughs> I think it's It's really interesting because I feel like up until this point, it had seemed like Sejanus trusted Snow. Hmm. Now I'm not sure how much he does because Hmm. he's kept things from him 
And he said like, oh yeah, I, you know, I'm not going to go find out about Lil and, and things like that. But I don't know that that's true. Obviously, he's he left during this concert for whatever reason. And when Snow made a very specific comment about them not having money, you know, he, he lied about that. And so mm-hmm. that's one of my first impressions is I'm just, I, I, I've been thinking about Sejanus because how can I not? And he's been so <laughs> interesting because he's the best. But it's just now even gone to a new level again because it makes me wonder, like, does he have that money hidden away because of the conversation that they had in the arena? He wants to use his money to help people in the districts. Or has Mm. he developed a morphling addiction to try to keep, Mm. you know, the trauma and depression and anger at bay? And he needs money to be able to get more if it runs out. So, I don't know, it's just very interesting because it seems like maybe now he knows that there's some ways in which if he wants to do things against the Capitol, like, he just cannot let Snow know about it. And if he has realized that, I I think that that's a good growth moment for him. I mean, it's still going to end up terribly for him, I'm sure, because, like, this whole time, things are just building and building, and I know something, you know, is going to happen. I'm just like, ah, but uh, it, it would be very satisfying to me if Sejanus <laughs> sees through some of his, you know, balderdash, we'll use that word, <laughs> <laughs> to not get explicit ratings. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I think you're absolutely right with, this idea of we're starting to see how he doesn't just implicitly trust Snow. I think it's also really telling how in that conversation, he points out that he's noticed that Snow has this kind of watchful manipulation that he's always had mm-hmm. in school. He sees Snow for for what he is in a way that we haven't really seen many people call him out for, other than maybe Dr. Gall. Maybe Dean Highbottom, but not that he would listen to him. Right, yeah. But Sejanus so much has been seen through Snow's eyes as being this doe-eyed, naive, easily manipulated character. And some of that might be true, but I think we're seeing here more of that cunningness and more wile than we've ever seen in him before. Mm-hmm. And I just, I found it so annoying, but also funny. After Snow sees Sejanus lie to him, he thinks, so supportive, so duplicitous, so self-destructive. <laughs> I was like, you do not understand how much this is you, except instead of being self-destructive, you're just destructive. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> That's so good. Yes. <laughs> uh, like, you've been pretending to be his friend this entire time just to use him or not get on the Clint's bad side or, you know, I, I think there was maybe one genuine moment when Sejanus and Dr. Grawl were just basically like staring each other down and the doors had locked and Sejanus couldn't get out and he said like, oh, there's a seat next to me. Like, I don't think he was using it for manipulation. I think that was a genuine moment. They're so few and far between, it's 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 hard to even see that as potentially not tainted. <laughs> yeah, and it was done b- despite himself. He immediately <laughs> regretted it. <laughs> exactly. But that's why I think it, this is so good. It's because ugh, snow is so frustrating and makes me sigh and write snide comments in my margins. 
but he's still enough of a, a human person that you could know, and especially at that age, that he's he's not the President Snow yet of Katniss's time, and he has those moments, and he doesn't do the right thing, but hmm. I can still see a humanness in him, where it's like those parts of him I still want him to lean into. I know he won't, but it's like there was the potential there that he could have. Hmm. Yeah. But also, before we move on to our touch points, I did want to say that an amazing moment for me was when Coriolanus was like self-conscious because he was going to go see Lucy Gray and asked Sejanus if he looked okay. And Sejanus was like, gorgeous. Trust me, that lip's working for you, soldier. Totally. I love how that like further solidified my headcanon of like Sejanus having feelings for Marcus. And I'm like, I see you, Sejanus. Yeah. I love you. At the very least, he is comfortable in his sexuality, whatever it is, enough to tell another man that he's gorgeous and to talk to him and what definitely reads to me is flirtatious. And in certainly our society, toxic masculinity makes that a pretty rare thing, mm-hmm. frankly, especially at that age. So good for you, Sejanus. I know, right? He says this like as he's a peacekeeper. It's beautiful. I just love it. Yeah, it's a great moment. <laughs> yes. But let's go on to our touch points now. So what are you seeing in the text here reflected in our own world? Well, as in the past few weeks, Snow's status as a peacekeeper has really brought to mind ideas of policing, particularly Mm. as we live in a society where the violence and oppression that can come with policing in its current form has been made very apparent. Definitely. And so one of the things that came to me as I was reading was every time Snow is in any situation where he feels a little bit vulnerable, he talks about how much he wants his gun, how ready Mm -hmm. he is to fight back, and all these elements of him not feeling safe and being so willing to use excessive force in those moments. And... This is an essential aspect of policing in our society, and one of the reasons why policing is so extravagantly violent. One of the things that's really been popping out to me is this 1989 Supreme Court case, Graham versus Connor, which was the case that really set the idea that police use of force should be held to a standard of reasonableness. And initially, people thought that that meant that, oh, now there's going to be more ability to oversee what the police are doing and when they might be using too much force. But it ultimately led to the opposite. It became a standard that was used to say anytime a police officer feels like they might be in any kind of danger, that is a reasonable excuse for them to use as much force as they feel the need to. Mm. And that's essentially how it's been used since. It's been described as the police officer's bill of rights, this really, really important case that's given them a license to act using extreme force just because their own fear of danger. And that's what's been coming to mind when I've seen Snow feeling that same way and almost taking out his gun during the hanging and Mm -hmm. immediately fighting back in the brawl. He's seeing things through this perspective of he is in a position of power and his 
fear of his own safety in that position of power is the most important thing in regards to how he is going to react and how he's going to use that power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think of it that way, but why is it that he feels unsafe around the people of District 12? Mm. I mean, there's obviously been stereotypes in the Capitol and and comments that it was either his grandmam or his dad said about like they would drink blood if if it were available or I don't know something like that and yeah so it's like he's had yeah these stereotypes and that completely influences how he feels when these people are starving to death mm-hmm. and he has a loaded gun what are they gonna do and like they have automatic or semi-automatic weapons yeah and, and- it goes back to what we we're discussing before, where peacekeepers are specifically not from the community, as mm-hmm. often police officers in our society aren't as well. And so implicit biases can often be explicit as well, certainly in Snow's case. Absolutely. But he feels fine around the Covey because they're this romanticized other group. Mm-hmm. There there are racial or ethnic groups in, in our society as well that are romanticized or fetishized in a certain way that doesn't lead police officers to be killing them, even if, you know, they don't like them or think of them as their equal or whatever it would be, but, like, they don't feel unsafe around them. So, mm. yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, what about you? What, what was one of the touch points that you were thinking of? Something that I thought was really interesting was when it comes a little bit before the the quote we opened with. So Corlanus and Sejanus are, are having a conversation and he says, Look, I think things will improve, really, but not like this. As it gets better overall, it will get better here, but not if they keep blowing up the mines. All that does is yes. add to the body count. And this just comes... Such a good quote. I know. Such a good quote. Ah, she's so good. (laughs) It's, yeah, just completely, to me, the mentality of trickle-down economics. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. Right? It's like, if you help the wealthiest invest more, it will help society as a whole. Well, the fact of the matter is, the gap between the rich and the poor in the United States just shows that that theory does not work. And isn't that exactly what we see 64 years later when we get to Katniss's time? Mm-hmm. Basically, nothing has changed in the districts, yet the capital is filthy rich. Yes. And so it's just, of course, the snow is the one who's talking about trickle-down economics. Right? <laughs> because... He literally is the one who makes sure that does not happen. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it's... It's so funny when people still talk about it because it's like you can see that it doesn't work, right? Things have just gotten worse for so many communities. <laughs> but like, I can understand why he thinks it'll work like as an 18-year-old when he's been told this. But it's just so our world, our society. And because Suzanne Collins is putting this stuff in there, it just makes me like her all the more. Yeah, yeah, really good point. Yeah, I love how much she critiques the U.S. She's just, Mm -hmm. ugh, I wish I could meet her. (laughs) (laughs) Suzanne Collins, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the show. Yes, if you don't want to be on the show just for coffee. Just become our best friend. A fair trade coffee shop and we'll bring our own cups. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yes, that was a great moment. 
Another one that I was thinking about that really builds off of something I think we were talking about a few episodes ago is when Lucy Gray is talking to Coriolanus after she saw Billy Tope. She says, he's got a different set of rules for him than for me. Like always, what makes him a victim makes me trash. Mm. It was just such a good and succinct statement that just kind of drives sexism home. Like in society, they're are just a different set of rules for women Mm -hmm. than men. And that, you know, goes for everything from being assertive or blunt, which will, you know, get women called sexist words that I refuse to say, you know, to to sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And just seeing how earlier we were talking about in our conversation about Finnick and, and Lucy Gray and how they were both sexually exploited. And Finnick is, is held up as this desirable playboy. And yeah. Lucy Gray is, you know, is seen as dirty, trashy, slutty, right? Which is obviously very intersectional as well. You know, Finnick is this white boy while uh, Lucy Gray mm-hmm. is this girl of color. And so, yeah, I just think that that couple lines really capture this issue of sexism and misogyny that just pervades society. Yeah, yeah. Such a good line. And I think that you hit on really important direct correlations with, in particular, sex work and gender stereotypes and and all sorts of other things. It also reminded me of how Snow looked at the poverty of those in the districts and saw it as brought upon by themselves, whereas he saw his poverty as brought upon by the districts. Yeah. So also having a idea of this makes them trash and me a victim Hmm. and he's very much in billy tope's role there yeah i I didn't see it that way that's completely true (laughs) although i mean i do i do want to say on on the point of of sex work we should probably be saying like sex trafficking or sexual exploitation because you know consent absolutely yeah well i had one other one i wanted to talk about okay which was a a place where i felt uncomfortably able to relate to coriolanus snow (laughs) when i i feel that sometimes too (laughs) yeah yeah which is again showing what great writing collins is doing and, and how well she's writing his character but when he is taking his test and he talks about how excited he is to take the test and how it's one of his talents that he's always had (laughs) to do well on tests and things like that. I am one of those people who is naturally talented at taking tests. You are one Uh, of those people. I I am. And, and And I say it that way. And I actually kind of appreciated that he put it that way as well, because it is a talent. It's not a measure of objective intelligence. It's a measure of a specific type of intelligence and a skill partnered set. with skill set exactly mm-hmm. uh it's the two together and our society uses it in a way that is much more deterministic than it actually is but it is something that i've always kind of enjoyed taking tests especially tests that that <laughs> i'm not too worried about like standardized tests that was always a fun day for me because it meant that I could breeze through a test and then take a nap at my desk. And then a few months later, I get my results and typically they're very good. And yeah, it was always something I enjoyed. And <laughs> not because of the challenge, which is the difference between me and Snow, is that he liked the challenge of the test. No, no, I want I want an easy test, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris. But I did I did want to at least Bring attention recognize... to how, how good you are at tests. That, yes, absolutely. But also recognize 
that even Snow sees it as a talent. And Mm -hmm. for someone who clearly sees himself as the most intelligent person in the world, he doesn't frame it this way, which I thought was an interesting change. So yeah, I I just, I I appreciate that. He did one thing right in this chapter. (laughs) Maybe in the whole book. One thing okay. I don't know if it was even right, but he did it okay. (laughs) He had an okay thought. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't go into... And I have this because of all the privileges that I've been <laughs> I've been warranted through my life or anything like that. His which, thought wasn't uh, exceedingly problematic. Exactly. <laughs> Not exceedingly. <laughs> uh, that, that would be Snow's hashtag. Hashtag exceedingly problematic. <laughs> yeah. Or if, if he, you know, it was something that's supposed to be positive. Not always exceedingly problematic. <laughs> 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 yes. That's great. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably go into our Back to the Future segment, where we look at the Ballad of Songbird and Snakes through the prism of the original Hunger Games trilogy. What were you thinking here? So, I drew a little heart in the margin of my book when they go to a small bakery in the town square, which mm-hmm. I can only imagine is the Malark Bakery because, come There's on. There's not multiple bakeries. Well, would Peta's family really ever have enough money to, like, buy mm. it, you know? It would probably be a family bakery. Totally. And so it was just, like, it kind of draws those parallels between Sejanus and Peta, like, almost in darker ink because Sejanus gets a loaf of bread from that bakery and then he gives it to Maud Ivory and the Kofi. It was just mm-hmm. a moment that made me happy because it's like, oh, Sejanus is a boy with the bread too. Yeah, this whole chapter made me think about place in really interesting ways in relation to the original books. Mm-hmm. Because whereas in the Hunger Games, we start in the meadow and then we go to the seam and then we go to the center of town and then we go to the capital, mm-hmm. we go in the opposite yeah. in this book and, and especially in these chapters. Very clever writing. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about was what you mentioned before when Quilanis like goes into the meadow and startles Lucy Gray. You know, she she sprang up from the rock, twisting her body as she rose, her eyes wide with fear, and the guitar held out as if to block a blow, and said, sorry, still got one foot in the arena. First of all, I love how she phrased that. Mm-hmm. And it was just making me think of whenever Hamish was woken up, Mm. how he just like thrashes out with a knife that he falls asleep holding. They both clearly experience trauma from Mm. being in the games, but they experience them very differently at the same time because Hamish was in the quarter quell, the Mm. one that had double the amount of tributes. So that's 48 kids. So he, you know, fought and killed multiple people very close up. I I think it was even with an axe. Like, this is just very in-your-face violence. And his games were developed 40 years after Lucy Gray's time. So he went into the games with a different mindset, planning to do whatever Mm. it took to win. But for Lucy Gray, you know, she didn't have that incentive of lifelong Victor Prize in a house. And, you know, and if she had known about those ahead of time, then maybe things would have been different. Because, like, getting a house, like, for her and the Covey, that would have been such a huge thing. 
So she came in thinking that, you know, she and Jessup would go down together. And so she didn't fight for her life in the same way. One, she she didn't have to because there were so many less tributes in, in the arena. Mm. But also she let the poison and the snake mutt kind of do the killing for her. Whereas Hamish was, it was very hand-to-hand combat. And so I just thought it was interesting that her instinct is to block with the guitar rather than to attack. Hmm. And Hamish's was very much to attack first when startled. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'm also now thinking, is she Hamish's mentor? Ooh, uh, I mean, we'll have to see if she survives the book, but... Good, good, good point, yeah. But if she does... Not very many victors came from District 12, so... Exactly, yeah. She, she could have been. Fascinating. So uh, what are you thinking about for Back to the Future? One of the other things I was thinking about was contrasting Lucy Gray and Coriolanus's kiss in the meadow with the kisses that Katniss and Peeta have in the arena. Mm. Because one of them is secretive for the sake of status and and things like that, but it's private and it's real. And the other is performative and, at least for one of the people, put on as a show. I think that that's really, really interesting to just see that kind of secret versus performative love happening between these different characters. And it just even more hits home how much the Hunger Games took from Katniss and Peeta because they Mm. couldn't have a authentic love the same way that Snow was able to have in this this way. Mm -hmm. It shows such a a difference between their outlook in some ways too because Mm. their personalities are very different where Lucy Gray is very romantic and snow has some of that in him slash just an inflated sense of self and how exceptional he thinks he is whereas katniss was like i owe this person yeah and i don't trust anyone and i've seen what living and loving in the districts does and i don't want any part of that yeah and it's 74 years after the game started versus For them, you know, this is just 10 years in. So things are very different. Absolutely. Well, what else did you want to bring for Back to the Future? Yeah, the other thing I was thinking about was Dean Highbottom apologizing to Lucy Gray. Yes. And then he stuffed a wad of cash in her pocket. That obviously brings to mind the the victor's prize. Mm. So it, it kind of just makes me wonder if Snow gets the idea from this happening and like will suggest it to Dr. Gall that like prize money can be given to the victor of the games to provide incentive for the tributes to play along with the interviews and try mm. harder in the arena to win, which will equal more entertainment. Meanwhile, you know, it could also serve to assuage some of the guilt that people in the capital might feel about 23 Mm. kids being killed in the arena each year, because that's to some degree what Dean Highbottom is doing. He's not trying to bring the whole thing down. Yeah. He feels bad for her, which he should, but is he feeling better because he does it? So yeah, I was just thinking about how potential compassion or generosity can so easily be 
manipulated so it could turn into, look, being in the games helped Finnick O'Dare, or Enobaru deserved to win because of her fighting spirit, you know, like where yeah. an idea of earning and deserving gets placed on it and, it, and it just changes. It's it's no longer just retribution and a sadness that this happens to all of the kids involved in the games, but this one was special and they get compensated for it. Yeah, and, and I think it also goes into the ownership that the capital citizens start to feel over victors, mm-hmm. which the victors in the, in the 75th Hunger Games use against them. But you can't continue to build them up as important people to feature on interviews and TV and mentors and all these other things if you're actually just showing their continued abject poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, such, a, such an important point. Yeah, what about you? Do you have anything else on this? I don't. That was my last one. You stole it. Oh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> so let's move on to our ruminations. What are you ruminating on as we move into the last chapters of the book? I'm thinking a lot about control because we see how it's so motivating for Coriolanus. You know, he's thinking he didn't mind the Jabberjays so much. They seemed rather interesting from a military standpoint. But something about the Mockingjays repelled him. He distrusted their spontaneous creation, nature running amok. He likes that the Jabberjays can be controlled. You can turn their voice on and off, and it can be for a specific purpose. Yeah. The Mockingjays, things just happen. It, it erupts, and you can't control it. And he despises that. And he, you know, he didn't even like the song that the Covey sang that had some of those kind of elements of like sounds building on each other. And also it said in in the chapters we read that he felt trapped here on base while she, Lucy Gray, could freely roam the night. In some ways it had been better to have her locked up in the capital where he Mm. always had a general idea of what she was doing. First of all, disgusting. Yes. And it's just, it's so disturbing, the level of control that he wants. We read chapters and chapters ago that what he loved about the war was that they ended with power and they brought their enemies to their knees and Hmm. that they could regain that control. And I think that this is is the motivating impulse that leads him to be the snow that we know he becomes in years or decades to come and so i'm just really interested to see if there's going to be more elements of that that are pulled out in in the remaining chapters and if there's any aspect of it that's going to kind of tip him over the edge to to actually activate those thoughts rather than just have him you know that's where his mind goes. But will he take action on it? Yeah, yeah, so true. I'm ruminating on something similar, but kind of through a different lens, because for me, I'm really seeing this huge dichotomy and, and this huge difference between Snow and Lucy Gray, where he's exemplifying this desire for utility, whereas she exemplifies the desire for creativity. Hmm, yeah. He only cares about what is going to be best to achieve his aims, which are selfish aims. Whereas she cares about having a kind of freedom to exist and create and 
sing and use her voice. He talks about how he hates the nature, as you, you mentioned, of the Mockingjays, this, this rampant natural creative force that creates harmonies that he cannot stand, mm-hmm. which is also just so, so powerful for me, the idea that he can't stand people working together and collaborating in creative ways. Yeah. I don't I don't know where this book is going to end, but obviously you know that they would never work together as a couple. <laughs> yeah. Because she is not one to be controlled. And that is his greatest desire is to control things. And and that includes himself too, because she asks him if he feels like he can say whatever he wants and whether he feels silenced. And mm-hmm. maybe he doesn't feel silenced by the capital necessarily, but he silences himself. His voice is also not a creative tool. It's a utilitarian tool. It's one that he uses to get what he wants. It's just such a vastly different perspective than an artist. It's just this huge, huge difference and contrast between the two different paradigms. I think it's also really exemplified in what he thinks about the song or the poem that her name is based off of because it doesn't make sense to him. To him, it's, it's nonsense. And then he has to try to think of, well, how can I make a positive comment towards this? You know, it's like he doesn't care about being authentic. He doesn't care about learning. It's just like, no, this isn't logical. And, you know, as he said before, like, oh, well, the people here can barely think anyway. I think it's it's really interesting. I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there who don't like that Lucy Gray is the one who wrote the Hanging Tree song. Mm. But I actually think it's it's interesting and it makes sense in the narrative because for chapters and chapters and chapters, it keeps showing that she has this kind of poetic way of thinking about things or uses phrases that are a little mysterious or ambiguous to him and that song is written so much in that Mm -hmm. so to me it's not like oh this is out of the blue it's like oh no this would very much follow and Katniss probably learned this song 50 years after this time so yeah to me it it does make sense absolutely and and i think collins put the work in to show that not only her ways of phrasing things but her thematic elements are so relational it's it's about how people treat each other and the ways that they're tied together even if they've done wrong to each other and i think that that also is clearly built up to yeah see how she could be the person who creates that song mm-hmm And it makes so much sense, too, because if you look at this song and would apply it to their relationship, Snow would never meet her at the tree. Mm -hmm. So Janice would and would meet anybody at the tree. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy Gray would meet people at the tree that, you know, she cares about. But I don't know that Snow would meet anyone at the tree. Yeah. Oh, such a good book. I know, right? So... There are four chapters left and one epilogue, so we are going to have two more episodes. The next episode we have is going to be on chapters 27, 28, and 29, and then we're going to finish this little series off with a discussion of the last chapter in the epilogue and our final thoughts on the book. 
Yeah, we're, we're almost there. It's going to be a struggle to stop at the end of chapter 29, I'm sure. It's but... going to be terrible. I know it's going to be terrible. <laughs> Luckily, we could always record a couple days away from each other. The, the fans have to wait a whole week to, to hear our input, though. <laughs> oh, oh, they'll keep reading. I know they will. <laughs> they won't wait for us. And hey, they can also join us on Patreon, where they can engage with our book club discussions there at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. And get our extra activities and polls and cut content and outtakes from these episodes specifically, and then obviously all of our extra content for all of the other series that we talk about normally. Yep. You can also find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.